Hey, this morning I want to speak to you from uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Some of you will know it well and some of you not so well. doesn't matter, we're going to go through it this morning. And I pray this morning as we do that, that you'll see this as a really powerful story that can have an impact on your life, your circumstances, wherever you are in the moment of your journey. There are only two miracles of Jesus that are recorded four times in the Bible, in each of the, what we call the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. It's only two miracles. One of those miracles is the resurrection of Jesus in bodily form, overcoming the grave. So he was dead, and then on the third day, he wasn't dead, resurrected to life by God himself. That's a miracle, don't you think? Yeah, and it's one we're quite grateful for in the Christian church. Well, some of you are anyway. Well, tell your face you're happy about that. Um, be good feedback for me. The other miracle that's only recorded, that is recorded four times, it's the only other miracle, it is, the, is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle that takes place on the side of the hill, and we're going to look at that today. The question is, though, why would God ask me to speak about this story? It's been one that's been percolating in my spirit for a couple of months. And the reason that I feel God's asked me to speak from this story is that He's been showing me that I've made a grave error, and it's affecting my church family. So my mistake is having an effect on my family, and that's why I need to do something about it. God's been speaking to me and being very candid in the opening to try and give you some context for why I would do this. See, I have chosen over the, uh, the period of my time here specifically and purposefully not to spend a lot of time speaking about finances, about God's provision for us. So I haven't invested in you much time at all, really, in understanding the Scriptures and God's wisdom as, as pertains to life and how we can be good stewards and faithful and live in the discipline that He dis, dis demonstrates to us through Scripture. And the problem with that is that I'm not leading you in the same way that Jesus is about to show us that he led his people. The stats card that Jamie referred to, though, that's the cold hard facts. 56% of families in this church are giving, which means 44% of families aren't. Well, I'm making that my fault because I'm not doing the teaching and I'm not doing the leading the way God said. You can see the stats. We're behind on year-to-date budget for the church operations, and we're also behind on missions budget. You see, when I took this to the Lord in prayer, God was very clear in the way He led me and spoke to me personally as His son. And as a father, He told me off. What I realized in my prayer time, which takes the pressure off you, by the way, is that Jesus is the answer. In John, John chapter 6, which is one of the versions of the story we're going to look at today, John chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, reads like this. Jesus saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. He was wondering if his disciple would look to him. Oh, God's so specific. I did share this with you once before. Even down to the name of the disciple that's mentioned in the passage, 
is my name. That's the name my parents gave me, Philip. One L, same spelling. God's so specific, and I want you to see that today, that he points us to Jesus as the answer. And he, and he uses this to take his disciples on a journey. We're going to look at that journey. But I want you to look at it as a disciple of Jesus. I want you to look at it and to hear what God is saying in order that God would um, guide you through the, the ministry of Jesus. So this message today comes wrapped up in an apology for me that I want to do better to lead you into the life of fullness that Jesus makes available for everyone. And failure to teach you those things is something I'm going to correct. But think about it from your perspective. Why would you want to listen to this message? Why, why would it be something that is relevant for you? Well, as you're going to see, the crowd on the mountain have needs. Maybe you have needs, personal needs, specific to your situation, to your family, to your stage of the journey. For some of you, job. Some of you, it's finances. Some of you are wondering how God's leading you and calling you into a specific area of serving Him. I'm well aware that some of you have health challenges. I'm well aware that some of you have family challenges, relationships that are breaking down or not being restored. There are people in our family who struggle with emotional or spiritual bondage. So regardless of what you bring, Jesus wants you to know that he's got the answer. But there's a reason why you'd want to listen to what Jesus has for us. Because in all of this, I hope that you would see Jesus show you that God's your answer. So context of the story, let's have a little bit of a look. We're going to flick to Luke chapter 9. So um, grab your device of choice or your book of choice. Turn to Luke chapter 9 and tell me what's the context? What's happening before we get to the story? Shuffle, shuffle, flick, flick, turn the page. Luke chapter 9, what's going on in the narrative? Can anyone see? Just read the headings. He sent, Jesus sent out his disciples at, in, in Luke chapter 9. We see that the disciples, the 12, have been on a ministry tour. And I can tell you from experience, when you go on a ministry tour, you come back tired. Excited? but tired, because Jesus sent them out, not just to go on tour, but to preach the message of the good news, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons, so the disciples did what Jesus asked them to, and they came back, wow, awesome, what else happens, you can see that in Luke chapter 9, before the 5,000, there's something else that we want to notice, Hey. Eh? Yeah, so they went with nothing, yep, but there's a key event in the history of the church that happens that's worth noticing. Herod, he, he wants to see Jesus, but why? Because he thinks he's John the Baptist raised from who? Oh, did you catch that? John the Baptist has no head. It's a big deal for Jesus. You've got to get into the context of the story. Who is John the Baptist? Jesus' cousin. Remember when Mary met Elizabeth and the babies were having this party in the womb together? Remember that? It's my creative version of the story. but So John the Baptist gets his head cut off, beheaded by Herod. 
Jesus hears the news and it makes God sad. And he looks at his disciples and he says, well, you guys are tired, I'm tired. We should go. We really should. Seriously. Like, let's go, let's go and hide on a mountain because it says in Mark, I'm going to look at Mark chapter 6 so you can flick now. You see there's four versions of the story. You can choose which one you read this week. But Mark chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many, many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. Life was busy. Real busy. Is your life busy? My life's busy. Jesus says, let's go away. Now, um, I think it's Matthew, Matthew's version says, Jesus was very sad at the news that John the Baptist was dead. And then he gets word that Herod wants to see him. And he's like, well, no, come on, let's have some time out. Let me read you the story. I don't know if you've heard it or not before, but I want to read it to you today because um, some of you may not even have a Bible, so you're not called what sure we're talking about. They left by boat, they being disciples and Jesus, for a quiet place. I'm reading in Mark chapter 6, verse 32. Verse 33, many people recognized them, saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran along the shore and got there ahead of them. Somehow they knew where they were going. They ran around the coast of the lake. It's the northern tip of the lake. These guys, um, the public, are running around. We read in another part of um, the translation of the story is that it's coming to the time of a celebration in Jerusalem. So there's lots of people traveling towards Jerusalem for the feast. And so there's more people than there would normally be in this region. And they've all heard about Jesus and they're buzzing to chase him. So they do. Lots of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came and said, this is a remote place. Like it's the wilderness. We're on a mountain somewhere. It's already late. Like it's, it's after three, it's not quite dark. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. Jesus said, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for eight months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, Jesus asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, clearly the disciples didn't have any. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. And Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up towards heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish, a total of 5,000 men and their families were fed from those loaves. This is a miracle of Jesus. Jesus does a remarkable thing here. Jesus takes a small, meager lunch that comes, we're going to read shortly, from a child. And he blesses it. And as he gives it, he multiplies. It multiplies so that it feeds, some would say, 20,000 people, 5,000 men and their families. What do we see in Jesus here? I want you to recognize that Jesus is the hero of all the stories in the Bible. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, points to Jesus. He is the hero. 
and we want to make him the hero of our lives also. But what I love about this, and, and this is why I talked about context, is one, Jesus has had his disciples working really hard. They're really tired. And Jesus himself doesn't even have time to eat meals because people are coming and going. On top of that, his cousin, John, who's very dear to him, is killed, lopped off his head. The family have to bury John in a tomb without his head because Herod and his wife have it as a trophy. But Jesus always loves people. Jesus always looks for people. I'm saying this so that you realize whatever you're bringing today, whatever need you're bringing, whatever tragedy or crisis or concern or burden or worry or issue that you bring, Jesus always has time for you. Jesus always has compassion to stoop, to meet, to linger, to pray. Even when you want to withdraw, you should never withhold what you have. Even a disciple of Jesus will want to dodge the duty to be delivering miracles. Did we see it in the story? The disciples said, send them away. Dodging the duty to be delivering a miracle. It takes faith to feed a family of 5,000 with fish. And what seems minuscule will multiply and measure as it's ministered to the masses. This is a cool story. I wonder what it's going to tell us today. We're going to have a look at a few aspects of the story, and I want to start with this phrase that the disciples are recorded as saying. Jesus says to the disciples when the disciples says, come on, man, they're hungry. It's the end of the day. Send them away. Send them off to buy some food. And Jesus says, no. He says, come on, what did he say? You feed them. That's right. The disciples, and in the case of um, um, the, the story told by John that I read earlier, it was Philip that said this, but other translations are not clear. It just says, look, Jesus, you've got to be serious. Even 200 denarii would not be enough to feed these people. When you read your notes in the bottom of your Bible or you, you, you Google this phrase, you find out that many commentators will tell you that a denarii, denarius, denarii is plural, denarius is one day's wages for a man. One day's wages. So if you work hard all week from dawn to dusk, you get five denarii. So 200 is like eight months worth of wages for a working person, a man that's working in his business or in his job. And, and so often when you read the translations or the commentaries or the explanations, you, it focuses on that. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to look at something different. Because the number... The number is actually what's important, not the coin. And let me explain this by giving you some examples that you might understand, contextualize into your culture. Um, if, if I said to you um, that I was going to go pick it, I was going to go to Krispy, Krispy Kreme Donuts when I was in Auckland, and I was going to, yes, okay, some of you like that idea, and uh, I was going to bring back a box, and I was going to bring back a baker's dozen, how many would I bring? How many? 13. 13. So a bake, how much is a dozen? But a baker's dozen is? Okay, so numbers and sayings have significance, right? This is what's happening here. But what about if I said to you, ah, oh, well, six one, half a dozen the other? It's a saying about numbers, but what does it mean? Uh, 
Same, same, bit of this, bit of that. What about um, something is dime a dozen? What does that mean? Cheap as chips. Dime a dozen means, oh, they're just everywhere. There's lots of them. Easy to get hold of. Are these sayings familiar with you, or am I really stretching the boundaries here? What if I said back to square one? Back to the beginning? Back to the start. Okay. All the young people are going, oh, I've never read this on an Instagram. Put these in a meme, and then someone will understand. What if I'm goody two-shoes? What does that mean? Eh? I'm really good. I'm the best. I'm behaving myself. <laughs> I'm a suck-up. Finally, hindsight is twenty twenty. What does that mean? Hindsight is twenty twenty. It, it, what it means, 2020 vision means I've got perfect vision. Hindsight is 2020 means after the fact, it's easy to know what was going on. So, so sayings have meanings, and this is what the disciples are doing in the story. It's got nothing to do with coins. There's a saying, there's a meaning behind this, and that's what we've got to understand. The, the, the saying of 200, 200 in their day, was like saying the best I've got is insufficient. If I had 200 mules, it would be insufficient. You know, if I had 200 slaves, I couldn't harvest all the bounty of the Lord. 200 was the, in those days, it was this mindset that, look, whatever I've got, it's insufficient. And we've got to pick this up in the story. And why is that? Because there's a meaning behind that. And this key phrase is one that I want you to remember. In all your circumstances and needs that you bring before God. What Jesus is showing us through the story about the miracle is that God bridges the gap where the insufficiency of human means falls short of the need. Can we see Tiawamudu saved and one for Jesus Christ? Yes. yes. Can it be done in our strength? No. Right. God bridges the gap where the insufficiency of what we have doesn't meet the needs we seek. We've got 20,000 people to feed Jesus. Are you joking? All that we have, could ever have, or ever want to have is insufficient to meet this need. Jesus goes, I know, you feed them. What do you got? It's a key point. In any aspect of life, we can relate it to our finances, but you can relate it to your health. You can relate it to your family. You can relate it to your circumstance and your business, the challenges you face. But there's one more thing. As I said before, Jesus is always the hero. So we've got to get the clicker to click. I don't know why I'm shaking it, doesn't mean. Here we go, look. God bridges the gap with Jesus, where the insufficiency of human means falls short of the need. Jesus is your answer. Got a problem with your money? Jesus is your answer. Got a problem with your family? Jesus is your answer. Got a problem with your health? Jesus is your answer. Got a problem with life and ministry and challenge and people and relationships? Who's the answer? There you go. God bridges the gap with Jesus, where insufficiency of human means is not going to help. I mean, if we, had, if we could handle life without Him, why, why would we need faith? Well, you're just like everyone else. So this is where surrender comes in. Surrender is the theme for today, if you hadn't picked that up from the songs. Cyril chooses the songs without consulting me, puts them up there, and they bang on with what God's saying to me about the message. Jamie comes without consulting me to lead the prayer meeting before you get here, and guess what he says? The theme for today is surrender. God's got something on his heart. Why is surrender important? Because you have to get to the place where you say, what I've got is insufficient. 
who I am is insufficient for what God is putting in front of me. It's actually the way he's designed life for us. In every circumstance, I have to get to the point where I choose to surrender and I have to say, I am insufficient. I need to confess my need to God in all things. We're going to see this in the story. God's answer is Jesus, and he brings his strength into our world to change our circumstance. And we're going to see it in the story. This is good news, people. You can smile. Like, you can read the end of the story. It works out okay. Let's have a look, because I want to unpack something before we point the finger at you. Five loaves and how many fish? Two. Two. Let's look at the loaves. What does this mean? When you, when you read the Bible, you've got to understand there's detail, there's layers, there's revelation. And, and Jesus, you remember, he would talk, tell parables and he would, he would profess truth and quote Old Testament scripture. And the disciples would scratch their head and go, what is he talking about? But if you go digging and you ask God to show you, there's, there's things that can change your world in the matter of one word. So five loaves. What is... Five loaves mean in the story? Well, the number five in the Bible always refers back to the five books of Moses. What are they called? The Torah. That's right. The first five books of the Bible, which are, okay, here's a test. First five books of the Bible are what? Okay, some of you got that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're the books that Moses wrote down before he died. And they're called the Torah, they're, the, they're called the law, the word of God, the Jews. The people who this was written for knew that when there was five of something, God was saying, look to the word. Does that make sense? So five means the word of God. But there's something more than that. Because there's five stones, isn't there in the story? Oh no, that's David and Goliath. There's five Loaves of bread. Well, what does bread refer to? Well, if you keep reading Mark chapter 6, what you'll see, Jesus says, I am... Oh, maybe Jesus is the answer. Read John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the... And the... Was... There you go. Maybe Jesus is the answer. What, what's the story showing us? In any need, the Word of God is our answer, and it always points to... Jesus, that's exactly right. So, so we've got this concept here with Jesus being the hero. Now, there's something more than this um, because we want to get, we want to make sure that we're part of the story. Jesus is the bread of life. That's also in Mark chapter six. You can read that. Um, Mark six, no, John six. It's in John chapter six. Jesus says, "I am the bread of life, and you can eat me." That's weird, but read it and study it. But here's here's the thing here. He gives the bread to the disciples to distribute to the people, so you're part of the story. Jesus blesses it and breaks it, a symbol of what's to come with the breaking of his body being your answer to salvation. He breaks the bread, gives it to the disciples and says, feed it, the people. And it says in some translations, it's written this way, as they distributed the bread, it multiplied. What does that mean? In your hands, it's not going to multiply. As you distribute God's word and his truth to people, it multiplies its effect. That's how the kingdom works. 
Not in your hand, but as you share, things get multiplied. It's a key principle. I hope you're picking it up. Okay, so in this um, lunch offering, we have five loaves, and we also have two fish. Mm, I wonder what's meaning by the two fish. Would you like to know? Slightly interested or just mildly interested? Should we go like all the way or just half the way? What do you want? You choose, because this is where it's about to get a bit real. In Hebrew, the number two means difference. But it can also mean blessing. And it can also mean building, like expanding. Okay, so number two means difference, but it's more likely to mean in this context blessing or expanding. And I want you to think of a covenant agreement like a marriage. How many parties in a marriage? In this country? God says the two shall become and they shall multiply. Isn't that interesting? So the context of this, the number of fish, the number two means this, a true pair that works together. Remember, this is just more than a story. This is about you and your life. Covenant is where God brings multiplication and blessing. So then there's this other part, so I want you to get your head around. This is where you might get a little bit level two, so um, see how we go. The second letter in the alphabet is fet. Alpha is the first one. Bet is the second one, which is where we get the word Alphabet. That was interesting. Do you see how I did that? Do you see how I did that? That was awesome, right? Bet is the second letter in the alphabet. It's number two. But it's the first letter that's written in the Bible. The first word in the Hebrew Bible is this letter that you can see on the screen. And it's written that way because it looks like a house. Remember hieroglyphics? always has pictures and meanings. We'll get to that a little bit more in a second. And, and, and this picture we've got to build. I'm trying to build a picture for you to see what's in the story because it's relevant for your life. God begins the Bible with a picture of a house. Why does he do that? Well, the message and the story of the Bible is this. God intends to build his house with a covenant that is expanding. I got all of that out of those three lines and hours of research. (laughs) But God starts the story and invites you into the story and says, I am God and I'm going to build a house with a partnership. I will take for myself a wife and she will be beautiful and I will multiply myself through that covenant commitment and we will build a house that expands. We're in an expanding kingdom. You're in a family that keeps growing. This is you get to be part of this. God's invited you to be part of this story, and it's not bad news, it's good news. His kingdom, always expanding. So what about the fish? Because we've covered the number two, but why was it two fish and not perhaps two burger patties or um, some some Jewish sausages that were full of flavor and fish? Fish. Why fish? 
Well, there's a really long answer to this question, and there's a short one. I'll give you the short one because you don't want to be here. You don't want to be here till it's five o'clock tonight. So you do? You want? Oh. Okay, so here's a quick version of the story. When it comes back to hieroglyphics and letters and the context of this story, the way it's written, and there's a whole lot of things around jots and tittles that will not be taken away while Jesus fulfills the scriptures. I'm not getting into it. But the picture of the fish that's written means quickening of life. And some would say, some scholars say, as I research this, it means much, much more than that because of the way that the, the writer actually put the little flick and the twist and the emphasis in the letter. What it could actually mean is the fullness of resurrected life after death. That's what the two fish symbolize. Well, that's the good news, people. That's where you don't die and stay dead. That's the promise here. Jesus comes as the answer, the bread of life, and says, you can have a quickening of life, which means you don't stay dead forever. In fact, I'll tell you what Jesus says. Oh, this is not in the story, but Jesus says, I'll overcome the death part so you can walk in the fullness and the quickening of life that I made available for you. It's good news. Let's smile a little bit as we hear the good news this morning. Number two, let's get this. How many times did Jesus come to earth? Once so far, but how many times will he come? Twice. That's why there's two fish. In the narrative of time that God is outside of, but we are inside of, seven ages that the, the people, the theologians understand, Jesus is present in two of them. The rest of it, we've got work to do. Jesus comes the first time in this story and brings quickening of life for you. See, in the past, God would turn up sovereignly and put it on a prophet or put it on a king or put it on a woman who was going to be a judge. This time, Jesus says, no, I'll tell you what, God, I'll go and I'll do it. And that means everyone can have quickening of life. And what we'll do is we'll have the other part of God, who's Holy Spirit, get sent to earth because of me so that everyone has access to the quickening of life and can live like I did. That's the first time. Jesus came. But if you read the end of the story at the back of the book and you've got some help to understand it because it's really complicated, I don't get it all, there's a promise where Jesus will come again and Jesus will come victorious and Jesus will come for his bride and bring them into the house of the Lord that has been expanded to cater for them and the quickening of life will get extended because we've only got a small first fruit taste of what we're getting. I read that somewhere. Did you read that? So the quickening of life that Jesus makes available for you today is good, but it's not the end of the story. Jesus says, I will come again. And when I do, I will lead you into the fullness of what God makes available to you. So Jesus comes to earth, not once but twice, to bring fullness of life. And his victory becomes our victory. It's a key point. Don't live without the quickness of life that Jesus offers. That's why this is so important, because God bridges the gap with Jesus. Oh, it's gone. God bridges the gap with Jesus, which means any insufficiency of your circumstances is met by Him. Key point. Now, before I move on, I'm just aware that there are some people in our, in our church that uh, love to have the fullness of the answers, and, and if I didn't do this, then they would say, what about the 12 baskets? So very quickly, it's not, it's not really something I wanted to focus on, but it's there. Take a photo of it. Take it away. Twelve is always the number of government in the Bible. 
perfection of government. So we've got the 12 apostles, 12 thrones that they sit on, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the number 12, as you can see on the screen, means perfection of rule in a government sense. And the reason there were 12 baskets left over is because God is extravagant and abundant who's bringing into this governing rule when Jesus comes back the second time. But more importantly than that, if we go back to the house concept, God says, I'm building my house and I'm bringing my people into it, my special treasure, the 12 tribes of Israel will be led into the new Jerusalem. And you're part of that because you're grafted into it, Romans 11, you're part of that family by faith in Jesus Christ. So there's always these meanings for the salvation that Jesus offers. He did what we can't do. Is that okay? Are you sure? Okay. Because now what I want to do, now what I need to do is I need to shift the focus to you. Don't cross your arms. Let's There you go. <laughs> Works better when you whack it. Not your wife, not your kids. The clicker. So I've got to bring some I've got to bring you into the story now because it's easy to look at Jesus and go, Oh, that's awesome, Jesus, you're amazing. And then you go, Oh, the disciples, look what they did, that's awesome. You know, what about you? What about you? Because unless it's real for you, you're gonna go home, have your lunch, you go, Man, Phil's in a bit of a weird mood today. Pick the sermon to bits and not think about what it means for you. I don't care what you think about what I do. I want you to know what Jesus wants you to do. So let's bring you into the story. He's Jesus. Here's the hero. Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them. The people need a blessing and he brings the miracles of love and he brings them healing and he brings them truth and he restores them to what God has for them. He did all of that on the side of a mountain before anyone was hungry. We've got the disciples who are traveling with Jesus. They're also in the story. So we've got Jesus as the main character, the hero of the story. We've got the disciples who are also there. And they've been on a ministry tour. They've seen amazing things. It's implied in the text that they went out and they healed the sick and they cast demons out of people to set them free from bondage. It, was awesome. it would have been awesome to go on that tour. It's the first time they did it. Later you'll see that Jesus sent 72 out. And they said, we even saw Satan fall. But I find it interesting. And all of that, they're on a high, and then they get this situation, Jesus says, feed them, and they go, oh, we can't. We can't do it. Because instead of looking for a solution in faith, they just went to Jesus. Key point here, guys. Don't abdicate what God's asking you to do. Because if He's asking you, He's providing for you. You know what? Someone needs prayer? Don't text me. Pray for them. Like, don't, I'm not saying I don't care. I'm saying I need you to care. Just because I'm around. I mean, gee, I love to be involved, but don't abdicate what God's asking you to do. But the disciples did. They dodged it. They're like, oh, Jesus is here. We'll get Him to sort it out. Jesus says, no, you feed them. You see hungry people in the street in town? Sure, the church has got a food bank and we'd like to help out, but why don't you help out? Don't dodge it. In the story, there's also the crowd. 
And the crowd, you can see 20,000 people sitting in the grass and under the trees, and the kids are there, and the family is all there, and they're having a great time. They see the miracles. This is interesting. They see the miracles. Let's, it's in, I'm pretty sure it's the end of John. I've read, read flipped it through the pages so many times, I don't know which way is up. One of the stories, you can work out which, at the end of it, they say, what a miracle Jesus did, let's make him our king. St. John. So these were people that knew the Old Testament, and in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that there will come a Messiah who will deliver you, and they're like going, hey, he's the one. He's the one. You see, the crowd saw the miracle and they wanted to honor Jesus. The disciples, they were just a bit dull, if I'm being really honest. And we've got to work out where you are in this story. So let's go back to Mark, Mark chapter 6. And I want you to look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 52. Because I'm saying to you, I'm proposing to you that the disciples are dull. So this is now... After this miracle, and they're in the boat, going back the other way, and there's a storm, and they get in trouble, and they're terrified, and Jesus walks out on water, and he's about to walk past them, and all of a sudden they think they see a ghost. They were terrified, and they saw him, and Jesus said, come on guys, take courage, I'm here, and he climbed into the boat, the wind stopped, and they were amazed. Verse 52, they were amazed. For they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. So the crowd got it. The crowd wanted to declare Jesus to be the prophet that was prophesied by Moses and other prophets in the Old Testament. And they're like, this dude is the answer. He's the king. He's the Messiah, the one that will deliver us from the Romans. And the disciples are like, I just didn't get it. Didn't get it. Because their hearts were hard. Hmm. Well, what about... What about we look at some other scriptures? Because the point here is, if we're going to part with Jesus, we better make sure our heart's not hard. Because you can see miracles happen here whenever you want. You know, prophetic, healing, deliverance, other stuff. goes on in this church all the time. And you can see it, but you can miss the significance of it. If your heart's hard, because the disciples missed it. Not once, four times. Four scriptures on the screen. Four scriptures on the screen. Verse 37 of Mark chapter 6. The crowd, send the crowds away, the disciples say, so everyone else can go to the farms and buy food. And Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, with what? Whatever we've got is insufficient. We just can't do it. See, they couldn't, they couldn't see the invitation that Jesus put before them. And we know because their heart was hard. Turn the page, Mark chapter 8. You can study these scriptures later, but Mark chapter 8, verse 17 and 18, Jesus has just fed another 4,000 people miraculously. We're not getting into that story today, but afterwards, um, the disciples are on a bit of a wander around, and they forgot to bring some lunch, and Jesus says, well, what's going on here, guys? Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Watch out for that teaching. And they thought he was 
they thought he was talking about their lunch, and so they're arguing because they didn't bring lunch. And Jesus is like, guys, you missed the whole point of my story here. Why are you arguing about having no bread in verse 17? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes and can't see. You have ears and can't hear. Don't you remember anything at all? When I feed the 5,000, he goes in to remind them. But their hearts are hard. They can't take it in. Miracles happening all around them. And they just don't get the significance of what Jesus is saying. The clincher, though, is Mark 16. It's on the screen. Mark 16, verse 14. This is right at the end of the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus went to the cross. Jesus got whipped, beat up, stabbed, bled, died, got buried. On the third day, Jesus rose again. A whole lot of people he appeared to. And they come back and they say, guys, disciples of Jesus, special friends of Jesus, we just saw Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. And look what happens here. After that, he appeared to the 11 disciples and they were eating together. Jesus rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he's raised from the dead. This is harsh, man. Disciples are dull because their hearts are hard. I just flicked across these four um, instances here, and I thought, you know what? They couldn't see provision when Jesus was willing to do that on the mountainside. When Jesus calmed the storm, they couldn't believe that Jesus would change the environment. Waves, wind, stopped. When it comes to understanding the yeast of the Pharisees, the disciples were really struggling to get the revelation of truth. They couldn't understand why Jesus was saying what he was saying, and they started arguing about their lunch. And finally, the disciples weren't quite prepared to accept, it seems, that there was resurrected life available for them, even though they learned about it at school when they studied the Old Testament. I'm being pretty harsh on them. But here's the point. This is where the rubber hits the road. I don't think the disciples had fully got to the point of surrender to put aside their understanding and receive by faith that which Jesus was showing them. Because life with Jesus isn't about attending church. Life with Jesus isn't about rituals. It's about getting a badge, going to school. There are disciplines that are suggested to be good for you by God, and they are good, but that's not what makes you good. He is. And the only way he can make you good is if you surrender. And the disciples just didn't have it yet. The full surrender that's necessary to accept that God is all-powerful and nothing outside his ability is, is anything less we shouldn't accept. They hadn't got to that point yet. Because it was the same for them. I think it's the same for us. But we just take, we take this um, concept here. And we apply the lives and the fishes and we apply the disciples' journey and we say, what about us? Are we willing to accept that the fullness of resurrected life is available for us today? What does that mean? Healing, freedom, liberty, no bondage. Yes, you'll have hard times. 
But Jesus is always with you in those hard times, bringing his answer and leading you towards his goodness. It's not an easy life, but it's the best life. Living in the power of the quickening of life that Jesus brought the first time he came to earth. It's your promise. It's your portion. It's your inheritance. Now, today, in this moment. What about a revelation of truth? Is that what you're struggling with? I, I, I don't know. I'm just proposing out of the stories what might be the reasons God brought this message to the church family today. I do know this for a fact. Some of you need to let go of the need to have control of your understanding and, and move into a place of faith and vulnerability. Because there's only one way he brings revelation. That's when you put aside your expectations and let him speak what he wants to speak and have a heart to hear. Sometimes we just got to go, well, God, unless you tell me why and explain it, I'm not moving. You need to give that up. Faith is not control. That's fear. What about changing environments? Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, said, be still, be calm, and peace came. I am, I'm, I'm fully aware that some of you are in chaotic environments. You've got challenges around you. You've got people around you speaking the wrong things. You've got the consequences of mistakes you've made. And Jesus says, I've got the ability to change your world. In fact, Jesus said, You've got the ability to change your world. If you only had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be moved, and it would go and throw itself into the sea. This was a revelation for me recently. Jesus didn't say, ask God if he would hopefully help you and if he could move the mountain for you. He didn't say that. He said, you speak to the mountain and see it move by your faith. We've got the ability to change our world. I have a teaching I do here called Shifting Atmospheres. I learned it from a friend of mine. It's not my concept, but I've seen it work powerfully. When someone comes under fear or bondage, we've got the ability to shift that spiritual atmosphere by the decrees and declarations we make. It's the real world. It's what Jesus demonstrated and it wants, he wants us to walk in. That's not weird. It's Jesus. And finally, when it comes to provision, don't know where you're at. Don't know what it means for you. If you need a job, if you need finances, if you need provision of some kind, maybe you've got more bills than you've got money. I don't know. But I do know that the one that multiplies the bread and the fish, as you distribute what you have, he multiplies it. Step into the place of partnering with Jesus. If you've got needs in your family around provision, partner with Jesus. If you want your family to expand and extend, partner with Jesus. If you want a miracle, you better get off your butt and find it. Because he's not handing it to you on a platter. If I could get the band to come back. This is all about us surrendering so that we get to see God as our solution. I had a, 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 a walk around the lake yesterday with Richard Tiddy's one of our elders. He's with his, his elderly mum today. He sort of said, oh, we're going to have a family day with mum and Matamata. And we were walking around the lake, and I was, I, was, I was telling him about this morning, and we're getting a little bit excited about the message because right here, this is it. This is the big deal at the end. Because Jesus brings us into this place with a story, and you're in the story, but you get to choose who you are in the story. You truly do. 
You can be one of the disciples that looks to Jesus or looks to the leader and says, well, you sort it out. It's your problem. You're the leader. Or you could, you could be one of the disciples that says, no, send them away because we haven't got what they need. But here's what I'd say to you. If you put yourself in the place of surrender truly, the best choice that I reckon you could make would be choose to be the child. It wasn't 15 people that brought a bag of food from the food bank to feed the crowd on the mountain. It was one child. One child. One child brought their lunchbox and brought it to the disciples and says, I don't have much, but what I have, I'll give you everything. And it was that complete surrender that sparked a miracle that is so powerful that it's told in all four Gospels because God wants to make sure we get the message that he's inviting us into the story to participate with him, to partner with Jesus as the answer for other people. So you've got to bring what you have. Richard and I were speaking about this as elders of the church yesterday. We were walking around the lake enjoying the sunshine. We were spurring each other on in faith because we said, you know what? All we need to fix this problem in the church, the lack of finance that's constraining our vision, you just need one child with your lunchbox. But it's about a lifestyle surrender. What's your role? Well, you choose. Stay in the crowd and wait for someone else to do it. Or bring what you have. Choose to be the child. Choose to be the child. Surrender your life. Surrender every aspect of your life. You can stand. We're going to sing this song again. And in this moment, this is about yielding ourselves to what God's leading us into. For some of you, it is financial. For others, it's around faith for your family, for your kids, for your spouse, for your parents, for those in your extended family. It's faith to step into that place where you're the child bringing only a meager amount but seeing God multiply and bring miracles. For others of you, it's about the atmosphere around you, the chaos, the storm, the absence of peace. God is saying, if you'll surrender, if you'll have faith in me, I'm going to show you how to shift a mountain. I'm going to show you how to calm a storm. I'm going to show you how to be one that releases peace into a world of darkness and chaos because you choose to be the child. We're going to sing this song together. As I was praying for you before the service, I felt that this was a moment for some of you to let go of fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the lack of control. Fear is what robs us of faith. And in this environment, at this altar, where you come in humility to surrender yourself before Jesus, God will bring His love that is so powerful and this love will flow across you, over you and in you and it will drive out fear. How do I know that? Because I've seen it happen in my life and I've seen it happen in many people's lives. God is love and He brings His love to strengthen us in the place of faith. Church, let's be a people who surrender to God. Let's be a people who willingly yield our lives that we would have all that He has for us.
Let's sing this together.